The 1995 article from the Record Journal that I read in episode four raises a lot of questions, to say the least, about what was going on inside the Vincent's home. And it doesn't end there. There's one more article from the Record Journal that I'll read for you in a later episode, written in 2001. But before we dive into that, we need to know more about the property first. The house on Whirlwind Hill Road that the Vincents only lived in for 10 days before Doreen disappeared. I'll start off by telling you that Mark Vincent and his wife Sharon did not own that house. They were renting it. I first told you in episode one that Mark was a carpenter, a highly skilled one. That's how he knew about the house. He was hired to do work on it as it was being renovated. So now that you're armed with that knowledge, in this episode, I'm going to take you through the morning of June 18th, 1988, when Doreen's mother Donna and her sister Carol showed up at the house, as told in their own words. I'll also share with you a perspective from a neighbor who lived across the street from the Vincents and still lives there to this day. And later, we'll have an interview that Jessica Fritz Aguirre conducted with the owner of the property at the time, who rented the house to Mark and Sharon Vincent. This is Season 2, Episode 5 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Demio. Speaking of things that I talked about in episode one, I mentioned that when I first got in touch with the records department at the Wallingford Police, they told me I would have to get in touch with a Lieutenant Michael Colavolpe. This was back in October of 2018 when I was first in touch with them, and they had told me that Lieutenant Colavolpe wouldn't be available until December. So December comes around, and I called the number that I was given. I got a voicemail, but I did shortly thereafter get a call back. Lieutenant Colavolpe had some questions for me. The things that you would expect, like what is this project? What was our goal in doing it? What was it we were looking for from the police and so forth? And I explained who we were and that the whole point of doing this was to get people talking about Doreen's case again, so that if someone knows something, they would be encouraged to come forward. I also told Colavolpe that as he was the member of the department that I was told to get in touch with, that I'd like to meet him in person and talk about the case on record for the podcast. Then he let me know that he wouldn't be the person to talk to for direct information on Doreen's case. However, he said he would check with the state's attorney's office to make sure that it was all right with them that the police share any information with me or the rest of the team, and that if they gave the okay, then he would refer me to the lieutenant who did last oversee the case, a Lieutenant Anthony DeMeo, the head of the traffic division. I said that sounds good to me, so we hung up with each other. So that was where the team and I stood with the Wallingford police as of January, when we went out to Donna's house in Waterbury and met the family. I talked about when we pulled up to the house that day, January 9th. Let's skip ahead a little bit to when we were all getting acquainted in the kitchen. 
I played for you part of this clip in episode three. So now here's more of that. When we pulled up to, when we pulled up to the house, I said, well, you, you, we got to call the police. Because he's just outside with the lawnmower. Was he with the lawnmower or sodding? He was sodding himself. He laying was in the sun. laying in the sun. And, and this is three days after. Yeah, never laid and, in the sun. And nothing has been, you know, said to anybody yet. So we get in the house and say, well, you know, did you call the police? And he said, no. And I said, well, I'm calling the police. And he said, you know, go ahead or whatever. So anyways, I called the police and I said, you know, do you mind if we go up to her room? And that's when we found the jean jacket and the notepad spread had, on the right bed. The he had no, she had no bed Some spread. things had, it's hard to remember. I remember that. Some things I remember like it was yesterday. Other things like but I, the window there was a was ladder cramped. by her window. Which ladder? Yeah. That's right. Yep, there was a ladder by her window. Outside her window. Okay. Okay, which was really bizarre. The window was cracked. The window was cracked. There were a lot of us packed into the kitchen and there was never only one person talking at once. So it can be very easy to lose some of the details in the shuffle. You heard about the jean jacket, which they saw in Doreen's closet, the jacket that she was reported to have left with. Donna's sister Carol also said in there that Doreen's bedspread was missing. And then Debbie said that the window was cracked. And then Carol said that there was a ladder up against the house just outside the window. Well, because a lot of the reports say that that same day he had pushed her into a window hard enough that it broke the window. The window was broken. Yeah. And that was by his own admission. And the ladder was the Supposedly something to do with he was repairing something. I'm not but sure. But right outside her window. Right outside her window. And when we got there, he was working on cement. Okay. Oh, inside, right in the front of this, the porch. He was redoing the porch, which he was laying cement. So when Donna and Carol arrived at the house, Mark was outside sunning himself, fussing with the lawnmower, and he had just laid cement for the porch. I want to point out that this past December, my executive producer, Joe Aguirre, did speak to Mark Vincent on the phone. Mark said that it was just a courtesy call and that he didn't want to participate in this podcast. We didn't get permission from Mark to record. However, in a future episode, we will reenact the call with a voice actor. Every report that you can find online mentions how Mark and Sharon separated later that same summer. So during that summer of 1988, Mark moved out of the house on Whirlwind Hill, leaving Sharon and their two small children, who were three and two years old. This left Sharon on the hook for the rent, which ultimately led to her having to go on to welfare. I had said previously that Sharon died in the 90s, but that was a mistake. Sharon actually died in 2007 at the age of 45. We also found out in our digging that at some point in the later years, Sharon had moved with her two kids by Mark out to Ohio, where she lived until she died. We were unable to find an obituary for her, though. This family, who only lived in this house for a short period of time, understandably seemed a little out of place among neighbors. When Joe, Jessica, and I drove up and toured the roads surrounding the house, our main goal in going up there that day was to speak to a neighbor named Jim Piscati. Jim doesn't have many memories of the Vincents, but he does remember them as being a little odd. Jessica had first reached out to Jim by phone and left him a voicemail. He called her back the following day and he provided a wealth of information. 
She said that he was very pleasant. What Jessica relayed to me after speaking with Jim Piscati was that Jim did not remember what Mark looked like. He did remember Sharon because of a bizarre encounter that his wife had with her. Shortly after the Vincents moved into the house, Sharon had walked down to the Piscati's property and began picking raspberries off of their bushes. So Jim's wife came out and chastised her and told her they weren't hers to pick. But apparently Sharon said she was going to do it anyway and she just kept right on picking. He said that no one in the neighborhood talks about Doreen's case. Most people know about it, but they consider it, and this is a quote from Jim, ancient history. In recent years, the current owners have remodeled the house, including a horse barn, which is what Jim thinks Mark is referring to whenever he mentions his workshop. He said also that he had heard there were canines brought onto the property, but he doesn't remember when they were there, nor did he ever see them for himself. Jim never believed that a 12-year-old would just take off without calling anyone. And he talked about how remote this particular area is, cut off from the rest of the world. In the early 2000s, a large open field across from the Vincent's old house and right next to Jim Piscati's property was purchased and converted into a vineyard. And to this day, it's known as Gouveia Vineyards, fully operational, wine made on site, guided tours, the works. So when we met Jim at his house, he took us up to the edge of his property line, right where the acres of grapevines begin, sort of diagonal from the Vincent's old house. We stood right at the edge of the road, next to Jim's raspberry bushes. Hi. She's the host of the podcast. Oh, really? Yes, she is. Very good. Yes, she is. Hey, buddy. I What's your dog's name? Junior. Hey, Junior. Junior. Like I got a ball. Oh, I got anything <laughs> in my mouth. Play with it. All right, what do you want to do? Well, it's just like walk around. We walk just around. went past the house. You can, I can hear people at the vineyard. Okay. Okay. And wide open, yeah. Oh, yeah, wide open. And the way the sound carried, I was up over here and I heard just a lot of commotion, a lot of hollering. And that was it. Not paying any attention whatsoever. I figured, you know, who the hell knows? Somebody's hollering kids or whatever. And I didn't actually hear any any of the words of the conversation. Did you hear kids yelling back? There was just a lot of commotion. It could have been. So in the short time that the Vincents lived in the house across the street before Doreen went missing, Jim recalls being outside on his property and hearing yelling, or as he calls it, a lot of commotion coming from the Vincents' house, like a parent yelling at a child. But he didn't think much of it at the time because he didn't know these people and it wasn't his business. But the question that this poses as we move forward is where does this incident of Jim Piscati being out on his property and overhearing yelling coming from the Vincent's house fit into the timeline of events leading up to the evening that Doreen disappeared, Wednesday, June 15th, 1988? At the beginning, I mentioned how Mark Vincent was hired to do work on the house on Whirlwind Hill prior to renting it. So to give you some further backstory on the property, the original owner who built the house used the property as farmland. George Farnham purchased the property in the 1950s. Farnham then sold half of the property, which included the house, to his son Jimmy Farnham in the 1970s. The other half went to Jimmy's sister, Nancy Charles, who to this day owns and operates a bed and breakfast on her share of the property. Jessica Fritz Aguirre reached out to Jimmy Farnham, and she had some questions for him based off the information that we had gathered so far in our own research about the case, about the property, and from Doreen's family. I'll have that for you in just a moment. 
If you'd like to help me solve Doreen's case, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can find us on patreon.com slash fadedoutpodcast. You can donate monthly and you can choose any amount that you like. There are rewards for your generosity based on how much you decide to give, including my weekly blog, which I put out the day after every new episode, also including exclusive photos, exclusive documents, behind-the-scenes material that you won't find anywhere else. When you help us, you help us give a voice to Doreen Vincent. So please join us on Patreon. Thank you. Jessica Fritz Aguirre, January 18th, 2019. I'm going to call Jimmy Farnham. Hi, leave us a nice message and we'll call you back. Hi, this is a message for James Farnham. My name is Jessica Fritz Aguirre um, and I am working with a podcast entitled Faded Out. We're looking into the 1988 disappearance of Doreen Vincent from a property that you owned and rented to Mark and Sharon Vincent in 1988. I was hoping to speak with you regarding uh, the property itself and maybe to see um, if you could provide a little bit of background information. Uh, hello. Hello. Hi. Are you, you're talking about in Wallingford? Yes. Is it the, the, the girl that got, went missing? <clears throat> yes. Huh, weird. So what are you doing it for? What podcast? Um, It's called Faded Out Podcast. Uh Um, My friend and colleague Sarah had a, um, she had an episode or a show last season about the Johnny Gosh disappearance in the 80s from Iowa. And um, she decided to pick something more local this time. And she happened upon Doreen's case. And we have just been doing some research. Have they, have they, they never found her? They never found her, no. Because she was rumored to have been seen on the streets of Bridgeport, like, uh, sometime during that period. Okay, because from what we've seen in the media reports, we have not seen anything indicating that there was ever, um, you know, an actual verified sighting. Ah, okay. Because I, I just heard that. Because I, um... The mother hired a private investigator that came out and pumped out our septic tank and the police were all over our property. They, they found a, um, a freshly dug hole in the woods and they dug it up thinking it might be a grave. It was okay. really bizarre. I mean, they paid to have our septic tank pumped out because they thought it might have been there, the body. Right, right. And um, so you're trying to figure out what happened and... Yeah, we're just trying to piece together because, you know, when you go and you, and, and I'm, I hope you don't mind if I'm recording this just so we have it for. Uh, yeah, yeah. If, I mean, I'd, I'd sort of record it, I mean, to use in the podcast. If, if that's all right. Uh, I, I guess, I guess. I mean, what, where's your podcast broadcast from? Is it on iTunes or something? Yep, you can get it on iTunes. It's called Faded Out and you can get it pretty much anywhere. If I mean, if you'd like, I can email you a, uh. Yeah, I, I, I guess I'll be a little bit more guarded. <laughs> I wasn't being guarded in what I said, but I, yeah. Yeah, no, we, um, because we were able to trace, you know, or trace the property back. We took a ride up there. Um, you know, we understand it was recently um, sold in a private sale, or I guess more recently to a couple. But we, we saw that you had rented it out to um, the Vincents, to Mark and Sharon. You, you did what? I'm sorry? You rented it out to Mark and Sharon Vincent at the time that she went missing? Uh, 
yeah, I, I, you know, I don't 100% remember his name even, but he was a guy who worked on our house as a, as a carpenter for uh, Frank's Paint in New Haven, Frank IML. Okay. I think he's retired. I don't, did you hear that? <clears throat> no, that's new to me. So he was, he was like this born-again Christian guy who was like totally spouting, um, you know, always talking about Christ and very, uh, and we had to move into New Haven, so we rented it out to him because he'd worked on the house. So we did a renovation of it. Okay. And then um, things got super dark. His, he basically went back into his old life. Of uh, We'd heard that he was a drug dealer. And he basically, you know, left his wife, and they, I think they had a baby. Uh, yeah, they had two. Yeah, two babies. Yeah, and, and, and the daughter was his daughter by a, a prior marriage, I think. Yes, she, <clears throat> her mother. She, yep. And she was very spooky. I mean, she was sort of, she was at thirteen or fourteen. She was. I only saw her a few times, but she was very sort of goth. I mean, very. Uh, she reminded me of uh, the the young. A, a daughter in Beetlejuice or something. She was she was always wearing black and very black hair, very pretty, and uh, but always very quiet and seemed kind of like uh, oppositional. Okay. I think he had some troubles. They had some troubles with her discipline wise, but then you know she disappeared. But I always thought she ran away. Did you did you have an opportunity to speak to him about that? To him. Yeah. You know, I don't even remember if I ever did talk to him. No, because I think he'd already left the property and his wife was there. She was um, going on welfare and she couldn't pay the rent. And then she finally moved out Okay. after a few months. But she uh, was all very sad. According to Jimmy Farnham, he couldn't really remember Mark's name, but he did remember that Mark had done work on the house and that he was hired from Frank's Paint in New Haven. He did, though, seem to have a clear memory of Doreen, clear enough that he felt she was spooky and that she reminded him of Lydia in the movie Beetlejuice. Yeah, because it seems like the last time you spoke to him was just when he was on the property before he, you didn't have any warning that he left? No, no, I just, I just heard that he disappeared and that was it. We stopped paying the rent. Yeah. Did the cops ever, the cops themselves ever speak to you about it? You know, I don't think so. My sister might, because they, they dug up this pit. Um, I'm not sure if it was the police or the private investigator that dug up this pit. Uh, we had a, we had lent our property to a soils class from the Yale Forestry School. So they dug these soil pits to test the soil. And it had the looks of like a shallow grave. So that's why they, it was suspicious. Right, right. But, um, and, and, but I, I, don't, I don't remember ever talking to the police. Okay. How did you find me? Oh, we're researchers. So we, <clears throat> you know, we pulled the deeds on the property um, and it goes back. It looked like your your father was a pretty, uh, a pretty well-respected, prominent guy. And he bought it. Did he buy it from the original owner? Uh, well, he bought it. I, yeah, I think so. He bought it in 1956 from Ray Stevens, okay. who was a farmer next door. My father started, bought his farm in 1940. And then he, he added this to his farm down the street. Oh, okay. Okay. And then, he, and then he sold it to us for a very, very low price As when I was just uh, about 30 and having a kid. Okay. Um, 
yeah, we like we like I said, we did a little bit of research on him, and you know, I was able to track down. I is it was it the property split across the street, and the remaining half went to your sister? Um, well, across the street, it was, it was he sold the development rights to the state, so we can't develop it. Okay, uh, the, the land around there, the house was separate from that, but yeah, so he sold. Um, House across, the land across the street sold to George Cook, who then sold it to the Gavay of the Vineyard. Right. And my sister still lives there on the property. She lives, uh, she has a bed and breakfast. Their conversation continued as Jessica reminded Jimmy more of the case. And Jimmy began to have some questions of his own. Is, is yeah. her mother still alive? She is. We've pretty, her name is Donna. We've spoken pretty extensively to her, yeah. Huh. And she's all just mysterious, mystery, it's a mystery to her? It's a mystery to her, you know, she she hired the private investigator. Um, she ran out of money doing that. You know, she spent a lot of time in say Bridgeport and Waterbury in New York City putting up flyers. She consulted a psychic. She's talked to the newspapers over the years, but um she's never had any results from that. Yeah. That's just strange. I'm surprised the police never you don't think the police ever spoke to you about that? I, I don't, I just don't remember. I don't, I, I think I would have remembered that if they'd come to my door. But see, I was living in New Haven. Right. I was even living there on the property. Yeah, because I, I, I haven't been able to find any indication of a warrant, but I guess my, it's a legal question that I have to look into is whether, you know, a renter can consent to a, a search of a house. Um, I'm pretty sure they could if, they, if they're occupying it under a lease. Right. So did did you meet his wife? Because she's a mysterious figure to us as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I we knew her reasonably well. I mean, you know, we rented to them. We we saw them every once in a while when we were out there. And, uh, you know, they seem like a very happy young couple. And, uh, you know, this Christian thing and him having a job with Frank IML. As they were just about to finish up their conversation, Jessica brought it back around again to the work that was done on the house. Specifically, what did Mark Vincent work on? Was he, do you, do you mind if I ask if he was paying you with work or was he paying you with, with money? No, they were, they were paying cash. Paying cash. Did he ever make? I mean, it was a low rent. Well, you know, it was like $600 a month for a whole house. Okay. This is my recollection. Even, Even then that was low, but. We were, um, you know, as I said, he got familiar with the house because he worked on it before he moved in. And then he said, hey, he approached us, say, hey, I need a place to live. Could I live there? So. Do you remember if he did any renovations to the house or any improvements to the house while you were well, renting to him? There? Yeah. Uh, no, not that I remember. The day that the mother, Doreen's mother and her aunt came to pick her up, um, they said he was constructing a concrete patio or some sort of concrete um, in the front of the house. Huh. Weird. Like, like, like pouring concrete? Pouring concrete, and he had, um, he had a, like, it was roped off, and they couldn't get around it, so they had to go through the side door. Huh. Well, the main, the people in that house use the side door more. The front door is not really used. The side door is, the kitchen is the main door for people coming in and out, so... So the front, the side door, is that the door facing the road when you drive past the house? Uh, no, there's, there's, a, there's a door that faces the road, is the front door. Okay. Into a, like a old formal hallway, and then there's a side door with a porch uh, that I built on the side. Um, to the, if you face the house, it's on the right side. Okay. 
and you know, we we had um, when I lived there, I was trying to create a passive solar porch. So the the whole porch is you might have noticed has all glass, and then we had we had actually poured the, the porch had been just a wooden porch, and we created a, a stone porch, filled it with rocks, put in piping, and and put concrete over it. Um, that was well before he was there, so I don't. I don't, I don't remember seeing any concrete work that he ever did. Okay. And then he had said, and I'm sorry to keep you on the phone. I just had one more question. He said that she left from the front door, which his wife later said was in. And you know what? When I say front door, I'm not sure if he's classifying it correctly with the way that you would. But his wife said it was impossible for her to leave by that door because it was um dead bolted from the inside is that something that you recall being on the house hmm. which door the front door dead bolted he's, he put a deadbolt on her we're not sure so he says that she left through what he's calling the front door he says he found his wife this is i mean it's the mother of the door of the daughter that was missing i mean no this is what mark told police that he that when Doreen left the house, he oh, found the fr- okay, yeah. yeah. He's saying that he found the front door standing wide open. But then his wife, Sharon, the one who you know or knew, yeah. she said later that that was impossible because that door was dead bolted from the inside, and you would have needed a key from the inside, which the girl didn't have, hmm. to go out the door. Yeah, I have a, me- a vague memory of of that having that that like two two key, two sided keys. So you have the key on the inside and the outside, but I don't. Re- it's a vague memory of okay. that that we had put that in. I think. So in my next episode, we will continue on with the timeline of events after Doreen was reported missing. What happened in that year that followed? We'll hear more from Doreen's family, and we will have more on the day that Mark was arrested for being in possession of a gun. Until then, you can reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. There's also a closed group that you can request to join called Followers of Faded Out. You can also follow us on Instagram as Faded Out Podcast. To reach us directly, you can email us at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. And please feel free to also become a patron on Patreon, where you can find exclusive content that you won't find anywhere else, including photos, documents, and audio. Thank you for joining me for Episode 5 of Season 2. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time. Faded Out is written, hosted, and edited by me. Background research by Jessica Fritz Aguirre. Produced by Joe Aguirre and Jason Panette of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com for more on Faded Out as well as other great original podcasts. Subscribe to Faded Out on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts.